Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Rob McCurdy, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, CU Boulder, in mechanical engineering. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Robert, in the podcast. I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memories of your interest in science and technology as a child? Yeah, I, um, I think uh, I was always interested. Uh, mm. Neither of my parents were directly involved. Uh, my mom uh, was a, or is a writer, and my dad was an animator. But I think in particular, um, as an animator, my dad constantly had uh, all kinds of amazing tools mm. for filmmaking and for model making. Uh, he was also a very um, hands-on guy, so he did a lot of work around the house on uh, cars and home construction and these kinds of things. And as a kid, uh, you know, I, I followed him around and helped him. At least I thought I was helping him uh, as much as possible. Um, yeah. But I think that gave me an appreciation for, for not being afraid of taking on um, projects yeah. uh, because I never saw him express any fear in that. And then um, I think from an early age, I got interested in, in Legos and construction sets and, and this kind of stuff. Wonderful. Yeah. So do you remember where is the first robot you built and what's the feeling you had at the first time you built a robot? You know, I think at the time I didn't think of this as making a robot, but on reflection, um, I guess it is. In fact, it's kind of silly. The um, I, As a kid, I had this construction set called the robotics with an X construction set. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it didn't occur to me that I was making robots. I was making things that could do things. So, you know, I'd make robots that I could drive around and they were controlled kind of remotely via um this sort of touchpad, not really touchpad, but a, a switch pad that existed mm-hmm. then. And so you connect each of the motors via wires to the switch pad and you could drive around anything that you made. And um, this set had, had I think eight different motors that could be plugged together in modules and um, in modular ways. And it had pieces that you could make grippers from. Um, but I liked it because although the set had some uh, sort of preset suggestions for how you could make things. Um, I pretty quickly got bored with those, and so I wound up just making my own things. Mm-hmm. And um, I love that. I mean, the, the same was true of the Legos. Um, I think that I don't know if they still called this, but they had this Technics uh, line of Legos that were just basically pieces, modules that you could use to build things. And so, again, I was never really interested in making the um, the picture on the box. Uh, it was always more interesting to try to make something that would solve a problem or, you know, had some particular capability. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting because I, I saw from your your research profile, you wanted to make robotics much easier to design and build. I don't know if that's inspired you as your experiences that you want to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely true. And uh, it's funny, um, I guess maybe I don't do enough time reflecting on my, my sort of past experience as a kid and growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess if you look backward, uh, perhaps 
those things form kind of a, a line that makes a lot of sense today. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that robotics and, and by the way, this is not my idea. There are, there are many well-organized um, groups around the world, including the first robotics competition. And even, I, I guess now I, I looked this up, apparently the, the group that now makes and sells those robotics kits uses them in some sort of um, organized mm-hmm. educational way. But you know, robotics can be this amazing ambassador to science and engineering and technology because it's hands-on, because it's tactile, because you, get, you have a sense of accomplishment of solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's really important as a way of, of reaching out to people and um, interesting them in, you know, in science and technology. Yeah. I'm curious to ask you, what is the most beautiful and simple profound equation that inspires you while you're working? Uh, well, um, my background is actually in, in physics and electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And so I think in my time uh, in those studies, um, the Maxwell equations, which which really um, we call them Maxwell's equations, but my understanding is that they're, they're sort of this beautiful collaboration across mm-hmm. time of, um, of Gauss and Maxwell and Coulomb um, and Lagrange and um, who am I forgetting? Faraday and Lorentz and Ampere. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you look into each of them, um, they're related to all these other equations. And so Maxwell, it seems, had the insight to combine them together and reformulate them in this really powerful way. But um, what I love about them is that they are concise and yet somewhat inscrutable, but incredibly expressive mm-hmm. equations that describe so much of our uh, of utility in our, our world of science and engineering. So. You know, everything from um, the, the cell phones that are today just ubiquitous in all forms of electronic communication. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, for example, even soft robotics actuators, dielectric elastomer actuators, um, they show up everywhere. And so mm-hmm. um, I think I, I admire that. And mm-hmm. I admire that they, it seems that they came to be as a um, sort of an example of, of giants standing on the shoulders of other giants. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of impressive to look at the history of it. Yeah, yeah. So if you can tell us how, how you came across the of robotics field, and I think we have also discussed your research because I have the perception that your research is really focusing on real problem. For example, what I really found interesting is, like, for example, automated biological and ecological sensing. I found you really stressing on the main problems and um, of course, we want to, to hear about in detail, but first of all, how you came across the soft robotics field? I think it was you know, how I came across the field. I think um, it was um, uh, accidental and incremental. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off um, early in my PhD thinking about uh, modular robotics and um, modular design. Um, and then um, as I got deeper into that, I started to define my own modules and define rules for building robots from, from heterogeneous modules. I got I, uh, sort of interested in this idea of what I was calling cellular machines, mm-hmm. the idea of constructing electromechanical systems from a collection of different module types, not just one module to rule them all, which um, seemed to be the solution that many folks in, in modular robotics had arrived at. Um, and then I, I was frustrated by in, my inability to make those modules ever smaller and sort of, you know, mm-hmm. I guess at some point, maybe all roboticists become embarrassed by 
the amazing complexity of, of biology. And um, at that point in my career, I was just embarrassed by the fact that um, I couldn't make anything even close to the complexity and functionality of living cells. Now, you know, I, I guess that's a tall order, right? But still, mm-hmm. it was, um, um, I'm not sure how to, at that point, I think I was confronted with what to do next. And mm. I guess the thing to do next occurred to me was to just make my modules even smaller and even simpler. And so I started thinking about modules as um, individual elements of material in a design. And that kind of got me onto the idea of thinking about design of electromechanical systems as a specification of the volumetric assignment of different material types to different locations in those designs. So Mm -hmm. um, post hoc, my analogy of uh, of what I'm doing now is designing, um, you know, these systems from their uh, individual component cells. But uh, of course, you know, in real time, it was this sort of gradual evolution toward that space. And and the final step in the soft robotics realm was just um, admiring all the amazing work that others were doing in the soft robotics realm and realizing that I could apply the same kinds of modular design approaches to soft machines rather than just uh, rigid machines. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to ask you why you feel embarrassed at this time. Is this because you it's and you're incapable uh, to do it and fabricate it, or incapable of grabbing what could be uh, near from the complex structure? Why <laughs> you feel that? Yeah, I mean, um, it's maybe embarrassed is the wrong word. It's just humbling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, I, I'm lucky now to have two young sons, and um, you know, watching them and helping them develop. Um, is such a humbling experience yeah. uh, because, you know, nature has figured out how to do all the things mm-hmm. and more that, you know, we as roboticists will spend um, generations of careers trying to work out. So I guess it was that kind of expression. Yeah. And if I ask you what could be the most important question, because I know that from your research, you have been cooperating with biologists and I think that's affected the way you think about soft robotics. So what could be the most important question you have considered when you maybe be a student, I want to do that and that. What could be the important questions? Mm. I, I tend to think about um, about problems sort of um, at, at all different layers of the stack as a, maybe an electrical engineer might think about mm. them. So we spend lots of time thinking about the low-level designs and the materials that go into those designs. Um, but we also try to, to remember to be thinking about the end application and also how those um, those designs will be fabricated. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think maybe I've sidestepped your question. It's not for me. It's not one particular important question, but it's about trying to be making thinking about system level design and design choices um, throughout the um, the process of discovering and innovating uh, different approaches to making these structures and designing these structures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would like to go again for this point because I think it's very interesting. When you say you want to make the robots much easier to design and build, if you can tell us for the audience, what do you exactly mean by that in terms of what could be simpler? Well, I think what I mean by that is, um, maybe coming back to the the emphasis on on um, STEM, um, mm. I think that it's, it's easy, and, and this happens to me, this happens with my students, for us to become incredibly focused on one tiny aspect of the problem because it's a hard problem 
And um, that can be at times exhausting and demoralizing when you inevitably hit roadblocks and we hit roadblocks all the time. Mm -hmm. So for, for early learners who haven't already bought into <laughs> accepting defeat, um, maybe more often than you are rewarded with success, Mm -hmm. I think it's important to have kind of on-ramps to this, uh, this whole world. And so what that means is um, we spend a lot of time in my lab thinking about ways of collecting and consolidating what we've learned and turning that into um, design and fabrication automation tools so that other people can hopefully um, use those methods uh, to, you know, to bootstrap, to build things that are, that are real and interesting without suffering maybe all of the roadblocks that we did. And um, I mean, of course, this is not unique. This is what I think what, what all scientists and engineers try to do. And I think that what we're trying to do is to just make that as accessible as possible yeah. um, through open source software tools. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because I, I'm curious to ask you when you look at the software robotics field in general, because I think we have the issue about how we can have a design recipe when we speak about materials in general. So I don't know how you see the design process in the field because we have an issue for reproducibility, one issue, and sometimes we don't know how, how we have a design recipe. And I think maybe if we have a, maybe a reproducible methodology and robust modeling technique, I don't know how you see this approach in the field in general, the designing itself. Well, I think there's a really good example of that right now, and, and folks who are doing a better job than I am. Um, I think uh, I think it was Connor Walsh's group that created the software box toolkit initially, but but mm -hmm. of course many other folks are now contributing to it. And I think that's a wonderful resource for people um, for providing uh, designs that are already reasonably well explored and methods. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that we'd like to contribute to that to that kind of effort. Um, by providing design tools that um, maybe allow slightly more flexibility and expressivity in mm -hmm. the, um, the morphologies that people are trying to design. So moving beyond the canonical new net design um, into other kinds of morphologies and, and maybe not even specifying a particular morphology, but giving people tools, design automation tools. By the way, this is, this is the, uh, what, what I'm describing um, is an end goal that we've not yet arrived at, but mm -hmm. we're working toward design tools that um, will allow folks to to quickly explore and express um, soft multi-material designs. Mm -hmm. And for the multi-material, because I think that's also challenging in the field, how you think that we can uh, use fabrication technique for combining multi-materials, different properties, because sometimes the issue of a sliding or maybe adhesion. So I don't know yeah, what you thought about this problem. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think that we have arrived at one particular approach to fabricating with, with multi-materials. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are many different ways of, uh, of approaching that. Um, the dominant I would say my argument is that the dominant way of doing multi-material fabrication for soft robotics today involves um, casting or um, multi multi-step manual processes, and those are powerful. The materials that are available are wonderful. Um, the limitation is that you need to have some level of expertise doing that manual labor, um, uh, and I think more importantly, um, the ability to 
to prescribe the locations of different materials in a multi-material design diminishes as the number of materials increases. So if you just want one or two materials in a design, mm. you use multi-step casting um, methods to, um, to achieve that. Uh, but if you want to have many different materials and you want them to be finely placed within a design, I think additive manufacturing becomes a more compelling approach for mm. that. So we've been approaching this fabrication automation piece of it uh, from the perspective of multi-material added manufacturing or 3D printing. Mm -hmm. So maybe the question maybe still asking you, what could be the most critical parameter while you consider different material to make a multi-material actuator? What could be the significant parameters you have to consider carefully? Well, um, I'm not sure this is the most important, but it's certainly a stumbling point for us frequently, and that's the, um, the materials that are available to us. Mm -hmm. um, we spend um, perhaps more time than I'd like to trying to find appropriate materials uh, for this uh, process for added manufacturing. Um, in particular, uh, we use a lot of uh, multi-material inkjet deposition. And so um, that method is quite limiting from the perspective of the different materials that you can deposit uh, using inkjet. Um, yeah. but, but it's also quite empowering. I mean, it's a, it's a method that natively provides many different um, channels of material deposition and high throughput. And so when we are successful, we can make quite large structures quite rapidly with mm -hmm. high resolution. Mm -hmm. Great. So I'm curious to go again for your research line about energy, because I think in the podcast we discussed about how the energy in soft robotics is the bottleneck for our application. And I'm curious to ask you how, how, how you think about uh, designing, uh, for example, you're working in a small size and make sure that, um, depending, for example, if you have uh, you have examples for the wireless, I think Wi-Fi communication instead of using battery. So if you can tell us in detail how you came across that, because you took 10 years uh, as I read, and that's interesting uh, before you go into graduate school. So if you can tell us the story behind how you come interested in this research line. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I, as an undergrad, um, I always had the goal in mind of going to yeah. grad school. But mm -hmm. I think while I was going through that, um, that time in my life, I wasn't as focused as, a, as an undergrad probably needs to be um, in, you know, sophomore, junior and senior year. And so I came uh, to the end of my senior year um, without with a lot of interest, but without a solid plan for doing a PhD. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of accidentally got connected with a research group at Cornell, which is where I did my under undergrad degree, uh, that was applying engineering, electrical engineering, to trying to study animals in the wild. Mm -hmm. And um, so this was the bioacoustics research program, which was part of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And, um, you know, it was a an immediate sort of love at first sight from a research perspective, because I got to, to use the skills that I had developed and, um, and then they paid me to continue developing those skills mm -hmm. to build solutions that would have immediate application in, um, in conservation and in science. And so, um, one of the wonderful fringe benefits of that is that I, I had the opportunity to travel around the world. So, um, many, research voyages uh, on research vessels, which is always an interesting experience. And, um, you know, at, at 22, I was in the forests of Ghana um, wow. in the rainforest uh, 
deploying systems that I had designed and, and produced yeah. to record forest elephants in the wild. Um, went to uh, Patagonia to uh, deploy systems that I had designed and produced to record uh, southern right whales. Mm-hmm. Uh, a part of a number of other projects around the world and in the U.S. trying to um, you know, to discover more about the behavior of animals in the wild. And um, I loved, as you say, you kind of alluded to this, I loved working with the biologists. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that time, you're right, I think that that definitely influenced um, my sort of future interest in this multicellular, multi-material machines idea. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating, yeah. And um, I have just a quick question here. Why choose to go to graduate school? I, mean, I, th- I see that you have been working in, in what you already passionate about, but why is the decision to go to graduate school at this time after this experience? Well, as I, I mentioned, I, I thought that I had an idea of what I wanted to do. And although I loved what I was doing at the Lab of Ornithology, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't robotics. And so, um, you know, I remain... Um, involved in the wildlife tracking and, and monitoring um, world, um, but it's now sort of a peripheral part of what uh, we're doing in my lab. Um, and so going back and getting my PhD um, and, and, you know, really refocusing on robotics was the thing that I knew that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in this project, because I see that you say that electrochemical battery technology is not followed by same more low technology that Microsoft have. I think that's a really interesting part. Do you think that business statement, we can design like soft brain for soft robotics if we don't fall more slow? How, how do you see this kind of uh, direction if we can design circuits that doesn't depend on more slow? How do you see the opportunity? Is it something uh, completely soft? How do you see that? Yeah, well, let me answer that in two parts. First. I actually read a, a wonderful summary of um, the last 10 years of, uh, of lithium-based battery development. Mm-hmm. And it's probable that, um, that we're on a curve that's more like Moore's Law now. And, and I think at the time when I was thinking about this, we were perhaps at the, uh, the very fat, flat uh, part of that curve. So I, I do mm-hmm. think that battery technology has come a long way. And it's not an area that I have any real expertise in. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't claim to prognosticate about that. Um, it's still true, though, that um, in the kinds of systems that I was building for wildlife tracking and in robotics, energy storage remains a major um, issue. And so I mentioned a while previously in this conversation um, about our focus on system level design and making sure that we were always kind of checking in that the, the current path that we were on with a particular design or approach um, seemed probable to lead us toward where we need to be eventually. And so in the case of the wildlife tracking work, uh, that need and that restriction, that, that need for long endurance um, for these tags, what we call tags, the tracking devices, and the, re- the restriction of um, storable energy impacted the system design yeah. from the very beginning. And so the entire system was designed around the need to have incredibly low energy per position fix. And so even today, I looked at this, um, I think last year, even today, that approach, um, the, 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 this uh, time of flight based tracking system um, that, that I worked on some time ago, even today, it's about a thousand times more energy efficient than GPS when measured in uh, joules per position fix. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an example of um, what's possible if you think about 
where you need to be while you're doing the initial exploration of the design space. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the same, the same is true in soft robotics. Uh, there are many very interesting, um, maybe short-term paths toward actuation that seem less promising if you think about the totality of the energy intensity of that particular actuation scheme. Mm-hmm. And so um, while you know, we certainly in my lab use those, those kinds of more near-term actuation approaches, we're also we were keeping an eye on um, potential solutions that would be radically more energy efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great. So in this perspective, because you have these overwhelming experiences, I think that's very interesting. What is the most inspiring living creature you have witnessed in terms of energy storage? And maybe when you work in, in, in before going to grad school, because I think that's really interesting. What what uh, inspiring for you? Yeah, well, actually, this this comes out of um, my my travels and conversations with biologists. I, I wasn't yeah. aware of this, but there's something called a bar-tailed gotwit that um, is a it's a shorebird, um, and for for whatever reason, this bird has evolved to travel. Um, across the equator from basically from North pole to South pole. Mm-hmm. So about 7,000 miles or more of, um, nonstop flight. And, um, I mean, it's just marvelous. If you think about the amount of energy that this animal uh, is storing, um, but more so, you know, the efficiency, the cost of transport of this particular animal is just remarkable. Yeah. I think that's interesting, Bart, because I think uh, when I look to what you have been working on, first, the question is, what do you think the missing pieces when you look to the animals or parrots around you in, when you when you work in that and you look at the lab, what is the missing pieces? Why we have this kind of gap? It's about understanding or about material selection or modeling. What could be this missing piece? And I'm saying this question because I see in your research, you're focusing in a, in a problem and then you find solution. I think your approach that you're tackling the, the fundamental problems. Uh, so I don't know how, how do you see this gap uh, between what we have in nature and what we have to do in the lab, either by inspiration or by mimicry? Yeah, well, um, this is maybe a non-answer, but I mean, um, it feels like we're missing many, many of the pieces. I mean, mm-hmm. so our ability to marshal uh, design tools to create um, complex designs that are uh, morphologically uh, dependent on the ultimate solution we're trying to, to solve and not on some uh, preconceived design that we think might be approachable or might be um, fabricatable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we're at the very early stages of having tools that allow us to think more um, holistically from a sort of a, a needs propagating backwards to a mechanical solution uh, approach. Um, we're at the infancy of materials that are appropriate for these devices. We're in the infancy of, of um, energy storage and of energy conversion into mechanical work. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, as I said, it's a non-answer, but I, I think uh, we're at the very early innings. Do you have example for you when you work something you witnessed that I miss this understanding or, I, or maybe in general the field? Do you have example for that? Uh, the mis- misunderstandings about the yeah, field. Yeah, for example, when you mentioned that what missing pieces, do you have example you can illustrate something you see that limitation and we have to, a student maybe want to work on that in the future, so maybe limitation you have to consider. What could be realistic limitation in terms of research and soft robotics field and we have to consider? Well, um, 
maybe two answers to that. I mean, as I say, we're still in the very early stages of, mm-hmm. of, of learning how to design soft robots and power them. And I think as a result, many of the uh, you know, excellent soft robotic designs um, also include uh, a tether, for example. So yeah. there'll be a, a hose or many hoses kind of going off screen to uh, some collection of pumps and compressors that are plugged into the wall power supply. Um, and so, you know, of course, the, the researchers in that case are not talking about the energy consumption. They're talking about the, the good work they've done with the other parts of the robot. Yeah. But um, I think in many cases, the reliance on that kind of, um, of solution creates a robot that could never be untethered, for example. And so if that's important, then um, it could be a non-starter. Mm. Um, so I think that, you know, there, there are these kinds of limitations. I also think that um, we may be limiting ourselves in the, in the field with sort of um, premature conversions on, on design solutions, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I think it's natural. You know, we, I think that we develop collectively, we develop solutions to problems, and then we all um, notice those solutions and, and make um, improvements to those solutions. But it means that we kind of collectively arrive at, at similar looking designs. And that may be the right thing, but my intuition is that we're still early enough in this field that um, there's perhaps a need to make sure that we don't converge too quickly on a particular set of solutions. Mm-hmm. I think that's also interesting way because I think when you highlighted the morphology and how the morphology plays a significant role in the design. So I'm, because we have already when in two, three days ago coming second uh, of robotics debate about whether we have to find a new material with new functionality or just use architected compliance where we consider the morphology. So I, I, I don't know, do you think that which side do you think we have to investigate more or we need more effort? Is understanding the material we have and how the morphology plays a significant role or we have to find a completely new material? Um, is, is it allowed to say both? Uh, yeah, okay, why? Both why? <laughs> sure. So, I mean, um, I think we're still still learning how to use the materials that you know that exist in our toolkit in terms of new morphologies and yeah. combinations of those materials. I mean, it um, seems like every day I, I read a new paper of, of yeah. some beautiful creative way of using existing materials. Um, and yet, you know, the, the hope is that there are still more materials that are um, out there waiting to be discovered or invented that would, you know, create a, a more accurate and um, higher resolution sensor or would have more efficient energy conversion or something yeah. like that. So. That, that's the answer, I think. Cool. So we will see how the audience will all think about it. So it's really interesting. So I'm curious to ask you, what is the area on direction of research you think is very promising, but community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure exactly how to answer mm-hmm. that. I mean, I think that... Uh, I, it's hard to decouple that from our own design-oriented mm-hmm. focus in my lab. We do spend a lot of time thinking about uh, design automation, uh, design synthesis, trying to, to make designs um, synthesized automatically in service of the application. Um, but there are, there are certainly many other folks working on that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I think one of the wonderful things about soft robotics in general is that because it's a new field, there is a lot of exploration of um, different aspects of it and that's I think one of the nice things about being involved in it 
So if I ask you about misconception, something you think maybe from viewers in the field or outside of you, but let's start in the field. What could be misconception about your research or maybe something you witness in the field of misconceptions? A misconception of, about soft robotics? Yeah, about soft robotics and maybe in the field itself, maybe research line, there's misconception or we need to understand something in, in a different way. Hmm. Well, I think it, it, I think I may have um, partially uh, answered this previously. I think that this idea of, um, of applying one approach to many different um, possible applications, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's great hope that this idea of um, morphological computation in soft robotics um, is the solution uh, to many of these problems. And, I think there are many cases in which it is, um, but I also would argue that some of the, the robots that we've developed so far that are soft, while they can address perhaps a broader range of, um, of use cases, they may do so in a way that's um, pretty suboptimal. So for example, you know, they, mm -hmm. they may not have the precision that we'd like them to have. They may not have the, the strength that we would like them to have. And um, I think that those limitations kind of proceed directly from the application of a soft robotics approach, at least as we currently understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So since you already have, uh, I think, Bachelor in Physics, I think I would like to ask this question. Do you think as we are in the field, we understand the physics behind smart material? I think that we understand the physics uh, behind these materials to a large enough degree that we can um, we can make smart choices about designing them, mm -hmm. and using them. I do think that our limitation is, is not so much about the understanding of the underlying physics, but is about um, doing so in a way that is computationally efficient. So um, in these soft, soft machines are continuum machines. And so um, if we want to model them, uh, there's simply more computational cost to doing that particularly if they're, if they're multi-material, if those materials have widely varying mechanical properties. And um, that puts us into a kind of a different space mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a, a model in which you can simplify your robot, simplify your machine. Um, because the cost of doing the simulation is lower, you can afford to do a lot more sort of forward-looking planning about either the control or the design of that robot um, whereas in a, in a soft robotics context, most of what we do using computation is to analyze an existing design um, or make small, perhaps gradient-based um, improvements to an existing morphology. Mm -hmm. So I think our, our limitation is not so much understanding the physics of the materials, but understanding how to um, marshal the computational resources to, mm -hmm. um, to develop better predictive models that are not specific to a particular morphology, which then would, would limit our design exploration to that one morphology. Indeed, that's a really good point. Thank you for thinking that, yeah. So if I ask you, uh, to which level developed soft robotics are intelligent? And I'm curious to know, how do you find intelligent soft robotics? Because I see that from your research, you're trying to embed sensors in the material itself. And that's kind of two research line, whether we have to design material that can make computation and maybe work as actuator and sensor at the same time. So how do you see intelligence and soft robotics? 
from your perspective? Well, I think um, this may be wrong, but as I think about intelligence and robotics in general, I think about the um, ability to to solve novel problems mm -hmm. um, and then the ability to create abstractions from the lessons learned when solving those problems in order to apply those lessons learned to some other problem that's sort of qualitatively different. Mm -hmm. And for the bean, do you think we can design material that can fill bean? Do you think that's something we can do or hoax just? Hmm. Um, I guess I wouldn't, in a robotics context, I, I try to avoid sort of the temptation to anthropomorphize robots. So yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it pain, but um, I think there are several um, good examples of uh, sensors for, for tactile sensing that are uh, distributed um, and that are relatively high resolution. So I think we're, we have some good steps toward building robots that could, you know, sense stimuli in a way that's analogous to, to human skin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious to know what your opinion about relational control in soft robotics, because we speak a lot about how, whether we really need traditional control for soft robotics and what could be alternative. So I'm curious to ask you, do you think that controller may be destroying the natural dynamics, traditional control techniques? And do you think we really need it in, in our software robot design to get certain performance? I, I think I'm going to, again, give you sort of a, a hedged answer. I mean, I think we have examples, um, even from traditional, what I'd call traditional robotics, non-soft robotics, yeah. of, um, of both exploiting and suppressing dynamics. So, for example, you know, I, I think you could argue that the whole class of these series elastic actuators, um, which are wonderful controllers, uh, you know, embedded controllers and, and actuators, um, need to take into account the dynamics of the system and of the actuator. And, um, and so folks have been doing that for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, and yet there are other examples of, of rigid robots where the dynamics of the system are utterly ignored and therefore suppressed by the controller. Um, and the same is true of soft robotics. So there are um, many good examples of good soft robots that are able to locomote in spite of having um, a feed-forward controller with no feedback at all and, and little um, accounting for the dynamics of the system. Uh, and others where uh, they have modeled the system either as a, a true continuum system or as a discretized continuum system and then used um, what you might call uh, traditional control approaches mm -hmm. to then control that discretized system. So I don't want to um, apply any particular dogma in that answer. Yeah. I think, again, the right tool for the right problem. I think um, one answer that... Um, is of interest to me uh, is um, exploring heuristic controllers. So mm -hmm. one advantage of a heuristic controller, and when, when I say that, folks usually I think would um, imagine an evolutionary controller, for example. Yeah. You know, these evolutionary controllers uh, have many undesirable properties, um, but mm -hmm. one major advantage of them is that they're relatively easy to deploy and uh, they often can come up with solutions that a human designer would have never intuited. And yeah. so we've been surprised um, in our deployment of these heuristic methods to both the design and the control of, uh, of soft uh, mm. robots. That's a good point. Actually, this is maybe why I ask this question in the first class, because I think we had some guests and say that nonlinearities, even in geometric nonlinearities and material nonlinearities, 
can bring opportunities you know, for soft robot. For example, you do need a control, and that's that's perspective that why they don't want to use a control to exploit that nonlinearities in the structure or the material. And I don't know what you, for your you, you, as in your field of research. Um, do you think what kind of nonlinearities could be beneficial and detrimental for your soft robot that you design? Well, I think you've mentioned this. I mean, it, um, there are plenty of examples of uh, very simplistic soft uh, robot controllers um, yeah. that then can perform um, you know, tasks, some manipulation tasks that uh, would otherwise require a much more sophisticated controller. Um, yeah. So the sort of feed forward, you know, pressure based uh, controller that I mentioned, that's very prevalent in soft robotics. Um, despite that being a very simplistic approach, um, it's uh, it's very effective, and I think that you know it's because we are exploiting these nonlinearities in the material, and um, you know it's a it's a really appealing part of of soft robotics. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, do you have an example that were there any direction you should work out very well, but empirical result proved something else? Just something was interesting for you when you work in, and you expected to get certain result, but it didn't happen like that. In a, in my particular research. Yeah, for example. Sure. I mean, um, I think I alluded to this earlier. I, you know, many of the things that we try um, either don't work or work in some unusual way uh, initially, and so. Um, one story I can tell, um, during my postdoc, yeah. um, I was, uh, working with, uh, Daniela Roos at CSAIL and with another postdoc, Jeff Lipton. Um, and, um, we were working on this, uh, printable hydraulics approach. And, um, I just happened to, to, uh, not change the materials in the 3d printer, um, in the normal way. And I did so in a way that caused them to mix together in a way that I didn't expect. Yeah. And it, produced a material property that um, was just completely surprising and that ultimately led to another paper uh, investigating you know that material property alone so it, it created a much more viscoelastic material and a material whose viscoelastic properties we could control in yeah. a programmatic sense so that was a, a nice accident yeah that's really nice yeah and maybe should ask you what kind of maybe optimum material you're looking for. For example, viscoelastic is really interesting in terms of having linear behavior and then viscous are time dependent. But I'm curious to ask you what do you think maybe optimum material for your um, from your experience that you think you're looking for uh, for terms of design or properties. Well, one one current challenge that we're working toward is. Um, a material that's uh, it's more elastic than mm -hmm. viscoelastic, but is also um, compatible with an inkjet deposition approach. So, um, you know, we can print materials that are elastic, but also have a lot of internal damping. Yeah. But we love a material that um, is, uh, you know, is elastic with very little damping and also has, um, you know, high uh, strain before failure. So mm -hmm. that's a those sets of properties are kind of a challenge um, with many inkjet compatible materials. Mm -hmm. If you can elaborate more why you want to make less damping, for example, why? Well, um, uh, the simple answer is for energy efficiency, yeah. but also, um, you know, if the damping is sufficient to uh, destroy some of the dynamics in the robot, mm -hmm. then making um, more, more interesting, more dynamic robots becomes impossible with those materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, Many of the these wonderful um, cast 
uh, elastic robots that, that folks demonstrate in the software robotics field um, use a material that is quite elastic, has, has good um, strain before failure, and has relatively low internal damping. Mm-hmm. So we'd like to be able to reproduce that with a multi-material uh, inject deposition approach. Yeah. So in that perspective, what could be the biggest technological roadblocks for your research and maybe also the fields of robotics? I, I don't know if I can um, speak for, for the field for okay. us. Um, discovering these materials, uh, either you know, uh, finding a way to formulate them ourselves yeah. or, um, or learning about other solutions to them, that remains a relatively slow area of progress. Um, I, I think uh, the computational cost of uh, simulating and designing these kinds of structures also remains a challenge. Yeah. Um, so th- these are areas that we're working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And coming back to speaking different language, because you have this experience of so, do you think we have this challenge in speaking different language in the field? Um, I suppose so, but I actually think that it's a, a really nice feature of the software robotics yeah. community. Uh, I think it's wonderful that there are people who are uh, very active in it. Uh, right. In fact, that, you know, I think that many, many folks credit George Whitesides as, as starting this off. Um, and um, I think he would probably not describe himself um, as a roboticist first and foremost. Yeah. So um, I think having the diversity of experiences in this field uh, is really empowering and interesting and, and leads to more creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's an important question and how to ensure that develops of robotics will be beneficial to the community or society around you. Because when you have a funding grant, you just think, what, what are you expecting after four years? How do you approach this question in your lab? I don't know if I have a great answer for that. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that we try to do is we try to keep sort of um, system level, including the end user concerns um, as part of the overall design process. Mm-hmm. And we iterative, iteratively return to those to make sure that, yeah, the thing we're doing could plausibly, maybe doesn't right now, it doesn't in the first five iterations, but could plausibly turn into this thing that solves the, this particular problem. Um, in fact, I think uh, I saw a talk that George Whitesides gave um, at, uh, at MIT a couple of years ago. Yeah. He talked about, um, what's this thing called, the Pester's Quadrant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the idea that, that, that things can have a, a technological innovation and a societal impact, um, but, but those things that both have a sort of societal impact and a fundamental science innovation are, are the most interesting. And I, mm. what I took from his talk is that he was encouraging engineers to really be focused on that part of the quadrant, or at least be, be more focused on the, um, the end user to mm-hmm. make sure that what we're doing is actually useful in the long run and not just um, interesting to us in a narrow sense. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know if I have a formula for it or, a, or a, an approach other than to just try to keep those uh, end goals um, you know, sort of front of mind uh, not all the time, at least uh, periodically during the design process. Mm-hmm. That's indeed an excellent point. And I think that's related about, um, do you think we have intellectual inclusive culture for different ideas? Because we have a few grants and a few funding and it's challenging. So as you mentioned earlier, that if we want folks in a product or maybe uh, or technology driven, so there's two different passes here. And sometimes it's Let's be honest about that. Sometimes we make a research line that's less risky, not too risky, so it can get publication out of it. So 
The question is how can we enable more inclusive culture around the competitive ideas? Do you see there's a challenge in, in being inclusive intellectually of the ideas we propose in the field? Well, I suppose this is a challenge for, for um, virtually every field. And I think that it's not um, uniquely better or worse in, in robotics or in engineering or in soft robotics. Um, I don't know if I have a prescriptive answer for that yeah. other than, you know, to, to at least for myself and for my students, for my group, to make sure that we are um, constantly uh, self-assessing and, mm -hmm. uh, and trying to be as open as possible and not creating, you know, sort of not invented here mentalities um, and, and not becoming too wedded to one particular approach. So I think that's just part of the rigor of trying to maintain uh, intellectual curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we are close to the end. We have a few questions. And uh, um, here's Excuse's question. Where innovation comes from? For you, how it gets an inspiration to get these ideas or problems you have to work on? I don't know if I could put my, my finger on it. I think I, um, I read as many papers as I can. Mm -hmm. um, I have some editorial duties that um, kind of put me both into the robotics and the manufacturing um, realms. And so I am exposed to a, a lot of different ideas that way. Yeah. Um, when I can, I try to do some recreational reading, although I don't do as much as I'd like to. Um, I think that as I, as I, that story I told some, a few minutes ago, yeah. sometimes you know, the innovation just comes accidentally, but I think yeah. it also requires that you be um, actively working toward it and also open to it when, when that sort of serendipity occurs. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, you know, this is just recapitulating what other folks have said about um, know the opportunistic uh, nature of, uh, of discovery yeah and do you think ego is important for the researcher yes and no uh, I think that I think ego is, is too often um, thought of as a negative quality mm -hmm. um, and I think that um, to the extent that it causes us to be selfish with our ideas and um, and ungenerous with uh, listening to other people's ideas uh, and locked into a particular way of doing things, then it's absolutely a negative quality. But um, you know, if instead it's a it's a way of motivating ourselves for um, you know for the pride of, of performing and performing yeah. well, um, and uh, and also perhaps competing with others. I think actually competition is an incredibly healthy um, strategy for innovation, uh, assuming that it's managed well. So yeah, it's an equivocal answer, but I think it's it's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, indeed, you're right. And since you're really avid reader, so which book inspired you? One book inspired you. Hmm. Um, let's see. I've actually been going. I've been going through the uh, Expanse series, which also has mm -hmm. a wonderful um, TV adaptation. Um, it's uncommonly good, I would say, for yeah. uh, adaptations of books. I think that's in part because the um, series seems to be hewing quite closely to the story in the books. Yeah. And although that story doesn't specifically involve robotics, I think it doesn't focus on robotics. What I like about it is that it, it imagines a, a future that's um, not exactly near term, but um, you can draw direct lines between the now today and, and that uh, future. So I think it's useful because it doesn't, with one or two exceptions, 
um, at least in the first few books. It doesn't require mm-hmm. you to imagine an utterly alternate reality or universe. So I think it's useful yeah. from the perspective of trying to um, imagine things that are different, but also things that are the same. And, you know, that's important because that's more or less, if you, if you look back historically, um, someone, you know, existing 100 or 500 years ago, uh, if they're trying to predict the future, um, things are going to be, um, you know, different in ways that are difficult to predict, of course, but still relatively the same. So I think it's useful to think about the future in those terms. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So since you have this old expertise, I think I'm curious to ask you, what is maybe the important quality you have gained and you have to maintain while being in academia? Uh, perseverance. Mm-hmm. That's a good it's, um, yeah. it's, uh, it's a lot of work. Um, uh, it's stressful, mm-hmm. um, but it's also incredibly rewarding and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a privilege to be part of it. So lastly, what was the best advice was given to you with a personally or professionally and with a life it's changing? Hmm. Yeah, this is a hard one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the reason that it's hard for me is I, I think I have incorporated the advice from, from many different people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's usually for me, it's not so much a piece of advice like, you know, eat your vegetables or, or yeah. work hard or something like that. It's more about practice. And so what I've taken from the people who I, my mentors who I've worked with is the specific practices that they adopt in their lives that um, enable their success. And so I think about things in, in those terms. Um, I'm always looking for uh, different ways of doing things, small and large, to try to optimize yeah. um, my life, my work. Um, so I, I think that would be the, the way I would try to answer that question. Wonderful. Yeah. Do you have any final words you would like to say for Sofa Robotics community? Um, no, I just want to thank you for the conversation and, um, and, and thank all my colleagues for all the creative, interesting things they're doing. It's, thank uh, you so it's nice much. to be part of it. Thanks so much, Professor Robert. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.